0: Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're in a series of messages that we have, or I have, entitled Unleash, taking a look at how our Lord Jesus Christ unleashed His church upon the world, noting some of the things they did, the power that was evident in that, and just how the gospel went forth into the world, and how... I pray it can continue to do that today. But Acts chapter 5 today, talking about the church that never stopped. A church that never stopped. Back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus made the proclaim these words. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Those words, when Jesus spoke them, were not intended to make the church. to to stand back and take a defensive posture while Satan attacks, knowing that Satan can't overcome us. Those are words that are meant for the church to go forward, like a mighty army, in response to God's command. And as the church goes forward and is faithful to its calling, Satan can't stand against us. It's not that we let him attack and set back. We go forward and he cannot prevail against the Lord's church. And so Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's a building project. How long does that building project last? (laughs) Well, unlike all other construction projects, the building of the church is an ongoing pursuit, isn't it? It never ends. It never stops. Unfortunately, though, There are times when the workers that Christ has chosen to help build this church, that they're all just too often guilty of stopping. We do that sometimes, don't we? We start well, we give it all we've got for a while, we see a lot of great things accomplished, and then we stop. And we come up with all kinds of excuses, you know, hey, I've served my time, now it's time for somebody else to take over. Oh, it's it's time for those young people to step up because it's time for me just to step aside. Oh, I'm not gifted in that area, or I can't do that, or God's not called me. We come up with all kinds of excuses, but the end result is sometimes we stop. And I've never quite figured it out, but you will find this unique phenomenon in every church that you will never be able to keep all of the people coming. You will never be able to keep all of the people working, and you will never be able to keep all of the people growing. You'll find that phenomenon in every church that you go. Why? Because sometimes people stop. And if you've ever wondered why churches today don't have the same impact as the church in the book of Acts as we read what they did, I think the answer is right there. We stopped. So today I want us to take a look at a church that never stopped. Never stopped. I mean, if there was ever a church that had a reason to stop, it was this church. But they didn't stop. They kept right on going. No matter what the devil threw at them, they kept right on going. And I want you to see five characteristics of that church today. First of all, their purity. In Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, it says, And at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. So their purity, it says there in verse 13, that no one else dared join them. Well, why is that? Well, it's because of what happened in the first 11 verses. You recall the first 11 verses, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who got together to conspire a plot to cheat the church and get ahead. They knew God's power, but did not fear it, tried to cheat the Holy Spirit. Peter prophesied it, and they both dropped dead. How many of you remember that old chorus we used to teach the kids? Two of you. Oh, some of you need to go to church camp, let me tell you. No, that's a song we used to teach the kids about Ananias and Sapphira. Just a good way to remember it. and It just comes out that way, okay? But that's what happened. They sold a piece of land, took the money to give it and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, we sold our land for this price and here all that money is right here. We're giving it all. It was a lie because they kept back part of it for themselves, which they had a right to do. They just didn't have a right to misrepresent it and lie to God and lie to the Holy Spirit. And because of that lie and them wanting evidently to make themselves look better than what they were being hypocrites in what they were doing there God took them God the church in its infant stage here God is protecting its purity and he took care of that hypocrisy right off the bat and because of that because of what had just happened no one else dared to join them at least the first And let me tell you, folks, hypocrites don't rush to join a church that has high standards and deals with sin. That kind of a church doesn't appeal to hypocrites. And yet, even though no one else dared join them, it also says in verse 13, they were highly regarded, held in high esteem. And the end result was even though no one else dared join them, it almost sounds contradictory because verse 14 says, Nevertheless, multitudes of men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So the church grew in spite of the discipline that God brought, protecting the church's purity there in its infant stage. But listen, in order for the Lord to use you and I, we must be pure. Pure. Individual believers must be pure, and the church collectively must be pure. Because you've got no testimony without purity. You know, either individually or collectively as a church. Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 1 and verse 15, and he said, "...to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, meaning those that aren't pure... Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. When the people of a church, and the people are the church, when they're not pure, when they're defiled, they're worthless. Worthless for any good deed. God going to bless a church like that with growth? No, we have no testimony without purity. And this early church, God was seeing that their purity was protected here. So their purity. Secondly, I want you to notice their power, their power. Verse 15, as these people were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out onto the streets laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Their power, because they were such a pure church, they were a channel through which the power of God would flow. Now, I don't know that I would call this a miracle-working church, but it was a church that had miracle-working apostles because God had blessed the apostles with, with the miraculous gifts of the Spirit so that they could perform signs and wonders among the people. Don't forget the purpose, though, of the miracles. What was the purpose? The purpose was to lend authenticity and genuineness to the message being proclaimed. They were proclaiming Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, everything about Jesus, and then accompanying their message were these signs and wonders so that people would think what? Well, what they're preaching must be true. Look at what they can do. That can only come about from God. That was the purpose of the signs and wonders of all the miracles, to give an authenticity to the message presented by the apostles. And so the people recognized the power of God was so great on these men that here in our text they brought their sick, laid them in the streets just hoping Peter's shadow might fall on them, believing they'd be healed if that happened. And then everybody in the vicinity of Jerusalem were bringing the sick on beds and mats, your Bible may say, or on cots and pallets, and another version may say, Beds and cots refer to those that are a little better off than those that were laid on mats and pallets. In essence, it's saying both the rich and the poor were bringing their sick. And everyone, everyone that was brought to the apostles was healed. As verse 16 concludes, they were all being healed. So, we notice their purity, and we notice their power. That power came upon them through the Holy Spirit. Remember Acts 1.8, where Jesus told the apostles, I want you to go and wait in the city until you've been clothed with, with power from on high. And that power was the Holy Spirit that came upon them on the day of Pentecost. However, they were persecuted. That's the third characteristic here, their persecution. Notice verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is the sect of the, of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported back saying, "'We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside.'" Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, "'Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people.'" Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So we see their persecution here. A pure church will be a powerful church. And a pure and powerful church will always be a persecuted church. Satan will see to that. He always retaliates with more persecution when the church succeeds. However, he can't prevail. Jesus said so. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's your good news for the day. (laughs) If you're faithful to the Lord, you're going to be persecuted. Just know that up front, Jesus said so. But you see here in verse 17 that the motivating force behind this persecution was what? These religious leaders were filled with? Jealousy, that was the motive here. They wanted to silence the apostles for two reasons, I think. The threat that they pose to their own religious money-making enterprises. And secondly, the threat that Rome might come and take away their privileged position of authority. They're jealous of the popularity these men have. Jealous of the power that they demonstrate. the the miracles, the signs, the wonders, and how many people are are turning over to them and are being convicted and becoming a part of this life, as it referred to in verse 20. The way, Christianity. And so they're filled with jealousy and they start this persecution and they have the apostles arrested and put in prison until the next day. Why? Why? Well, because the law of Moses said that you couldn't try a man on the same day that you jailed them. That was the law. So they put them in the prison. It's ironic that after all the miracles they had witnessed, including the resurrection, knowing there's an empty tomb and they couldn't produce the body of Jesus, it's amazing after all of that that they somehow thought prison bars would hold the apostles. And they didn't, of course. And so in verse 19, God uses an angel to break the apostles out of prison, which I find a little bit ironic, a little bit humorous, too, because the high priest rose up in verse 17 with all of his associates, that is, the sect of who? The Sadducees, who didn't believe in angels. Okay, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels or spirits. Or, or life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. That's how you remember that, okay. So, but nevertheless, that's what they believed. But God used an angel to go and to release these men. And the angel came, told them, go back to the temple courts and preach to the people the whole message of this life. Interesting how that's referred to. You notice that the angel did not free them to go and hide. He freed them to go and preach. And that's exactly what they did. They went and they preached. And so the next morning the Sanhedrin meets and uh, the, the entire council, the Senate of the Sons of Israel, the high priests are all there. They send the officers, okay, go and get those men and bring them in here before us. And when they went to check, they found everything in order. The guards are standing at the door. The door is securely locked. They open up. They go in to get them, and nobody's home. Nobody's there. That's a big problem. The apostles are no longer in the prison. And so in verse 25, someone comes. It's almost a humorous verse here, but it's almost as if this guy is God-sent, mocking the authority and the pretentious power of these religious leaders saying, hey, the men that you had under your power, they're preaching at the temple about the power of Christ. Now, that's not exactly what it says. That's kind of a, a, a liberal uh, translation there. But nevertheless, he comes in, and he says, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So, the captain of the temple police and his guards go and arrest them again. Why? I mean, if it didn't work the first time, shouldn't you find out why? I mean, maybe there really is something to this Jesus guy and, and the power these guys are preaching about. Well, they bring him back without violence, afraid of the people that they might stone them as well. They bring him back before the council and the Sanhedrin. They're hot, they're mad, they are ready to kill. And they make three powerful statements here. Number one, we ordered you not to teach in this name. So in effect, you've broken the law. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. (laughs) Which I think the apostles would have taken as a compliment. And thirdly, you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Isn't it interesting? The high priest doesn't use the name Jesus. He says, This man's blood. Does that sound familiar? What was it Pilate said when he washed his hands before he turned Jesus over to be crucified? He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the people said in Matthew 27, verses 24 and 25, the people said, let his blood be on our hands and on our children. But now they don't seem to want to be guilty of Jesus' blood. No mention is made of their escape from prison or how it happened. They just acknowledge it. They ignore it. So all of this deals with their persecution. There's going to be a little more persecution come their way in just a moment. But notice a fourth thing here. Notice their persistence. Their persistence. Beginning in verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, if they thought that their threats would cause Peter and the apostles to back down, they were sorely mistaken. Because Peter tells them plainly, in fact, it says Peter and the apostles answered, so it's not just Peter, but they said, if it comes to a point where we choose between what you say and what God says, we're going to choose God every time. We must obey God rather than men. And he proceeds to tell them, God was the one that raised Jesus from the dead, the one they had despised and rejected, the one that they had led away to be crucified he was the one that God had raised from the dead and exalted to his right hand as prince and savior, and he is the one that could give forgiveness of sins to Israel. And he talks about the Holy Spirit that God has given to those who obey him, and these religious leaders certainly hadn't. And Peter ends this message with that tagline, we all know that these things actually happen." We are witnesses of these things, and we're going to keep right on preaching about them. So, their persistence. They wouldn't capitulate, they wouldn't give in to the demands of the Sanhedrin. They were persistent and faithful to what God had called them to do. So, we come to the payoff in the beginning of verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A group of about 400 men joined up with him, and he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, They flogged them, ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they, what, never stopped. The church that never stopped. That's in the NIV version. They never stopped. The New American Standard Version says, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's the results of all this. Convicting, preaching will always bring an immediate response. We see about three different responses right here. We see the response of cold hearts because the Sadducees wanted to kill these men. They'd had it. Already upset that these guys were preaching. Upset what these guys were preaching. And just like they'd done with Jesus, they just wanted to get rid of him. So you see the response of cold hearts. You see the response of some cool heads. Some cooler heads prevailed. Gamaliel uh, specifically. Evidently, he had no problem with the flogging because we don't see him trying to keep that from happening. But he said, look. If this is just their own doing, it'll fail. But if this is of God, there's nothing you can do about it. You'll just be found fighting against God. So let them alone. Let's see what happens. And that's what happened, although they did flog them. Usually a beating of 39 lashes to avoid going over the limit of 40. So more persecution. But then you also have the response of convinced heroes. Convinced heroes, they kept right on preaching. Undaunted by the threats, undaunted by the flogging. In fact, they were honored. They were honored. They rejoiced to know that they had suffered for the sake of the name of Jesus. And most of all, verse 42, day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped. Have we? Have we stopped? Do we stop from time to time? I hope not. As a church, I don't think we've stopped because God hasn't stopped blessing. God's still bringing people to us. As long as we're faithful in planting the seeds of the gospel, and watering and cultivating seeds that are already growing, God will give increase, and we've been seeing increase. So not everybody's stopped, but you need to evaluate that for yourself. Have I stopped? You don't have any excuse to justify stopping until you die. Be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. As long as you can talk, you can invite, you can witness, you can testify. If you've got the breath to talk, don't stop. Don't stop. What will it take to have every member of New Hope Christian Church attending every week? What will it take to keep every member of New Hope Christian Church working and serving? What will it take to keep every member of New Hope Christian Church growing in the Lord? Whatever it takes, let's do it, and let's never stop. Let's stand and sing.